We get to start a brand new teaching series this morning, and I will start with a question. How are those New Year's resolutions going? Good? Yeah? Um, I don't know about you guys. Anybody ever try a, um, oops, wrong way, a Whole30 challenge? A Whole30 challenge is a diet, for lack of a better term, in which you drastically reduce the kinds of foods that you eat. There's not a calorie restriction, but it's just the kinds of food that you would eat. And the first two weeks are fantastic if you've ever tried it. Headache, mm, moodiness, um, gastrointestinal distress, for lack of a better term. And then you get to like day 10, day 14, and something happens, and your body adjusts, and you feel like, a combination of The Rock and Albert Einstein. Like, it's just, it's this amazing thing, and you're moving along, and you're coming up on day 30 of the 30-day challenge, and you're like, oh, you start planning your splurge. Like, I'm gonna stop at Dutchess, and I'm gonna get a big D meal, and I'm gonna get a couple pints of Ben and Jerry's, and I'm gonna wash the whole thing down with a Coke. And then your cheat meal turns into a cheat week, and before you know it, you're right back to where you started from. Um, maybe you can't relate to, like, a a food resolution, but you might be attempting to be more productive or make better use of your time. That's it, I'm canceling Netflix, all done. I'm gonna go out, I'm gonna get a new Moleskine journal, maybe download an app, stuff gets color-coded, things get prioritized, rearranged, nothing really gets eliminated, but then the only thing that happens is you get more stressed out because you got a resolution, you made a commitment to better manage your time, and you're not better managing your time. And in an effort to self-soothe, you go and you get a subscription to Hulu and YouTube TV. <laughs> and you binge watch an entire season of whatever you're watching, Men in the High Castle. I don't know. Um, resolutions are resolutions. And I'm going to suggest to you the reason that they don't work is this, is that we take one of the things in life and we try to make it the thing. Right? It, we put it in the center of our lives and we try to arrange everything around what we're doing to address that one thing. And there's only one thing that's supposed to be the thing. It's actually a person, and that's Jesus Christ. The idea for this series comes from two different verses, um, both words of Jesus himself. And the first one is this, John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, I am no gardener. I specialize in killing things that are green. I just, I can't, I can't do it. Um, but even I know that if you separate a branch from its vine, that it's not going to last very long. We were created to remain connected to Jesus. Jesus is our source. He's our source that helps us grow, that gives us life, that gives us breath, the Bible says that in him we live and move and have our being. It says that he holds everything, everything together. And that's, that's what Jesus is called to be the thing. And that's what we're going to work on is trying to get Jesus back in that seat of being the thing. The other verse that I kind of had in mind as I was thinking about this was Matthew 6, 33. This is, again, this is Jesus. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. His kingdom is referring to God's kingdom, the kingdom of God. God is the, the king of kings, the king over everything. And he invites us into a relationship with him and to live under his benevolent rule. 
a rule that is so, so wide, encompassing, far-sweeping, that even the things that are really hard in life, even the terrible things, he promises for those who follow him, for those who love him, that he will use even those things for our good and for his glory. But here's the thing. He won't force us into that relationship. He will let us choose otherwise. He will let us choose to put something else on that seat and on his throne. He will let us do that. But what we often forget, what I forget, is that when we put something else on that seat, on that throne, we become subject to it. And becoming subject to it, that thing, whatever it is that's not Jesus that's on that throne, will always disappoint us. It will always overpromise and underdeliver. It will never be the benevolent ruler, the loving father that Jesus promises in that, in that role. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go back to those pesky resolutions, and we are going to extricate them from the center, and we're going to put Jesus back in the center, and we're going to see the impact that Jesus can have, even on the most practical things in our life, and the impact that he has on our lives and the lives of those, those around us. And the first thing that we're going to start with is, um, is time. And I kind of referenced it jokingly in the, in the introduction about time management and, and what to do with time. And for most of us, especially who live in this area of the world, time can feel scattered. It, there's, um, there's like no purpose. There are no, no priorities. Time can feel hurried. Like we have all this stuff to do and we would really rather not, but we just don't know how to change it. We can feel like all we're doing is reacting. Like we're not, we don't, we're not the ones in charge. We are just constantly responding to the demands and the pressures of somebody, of something, of something else. And it can be exhaustive. Right, these, these, this group of four words and their descriptions come from an author by a guy, a guy by the name of Frank Powell. And he suggests with being exhaustive is that um, we can go through our days and we get to the end of our days and we feel weary and we feel discouraged. And I probably didn't even have to go through that list. We live that list every day, right? Nobody, nobody really needs a reminder of, of time and how, how it can make us feel. So we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at how Jesus interacted within the confines of time when he walked this earth as a person. And we're going to do it by, um, by looking at, we're going to go to Luke chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 40. Bruce, you going to take over for me? And this is a big chunk, so um, get comfortable. I'm going to read verse 40 through verse 56. This is Luke 8, 40 through 56. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue, um, sorry, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She had come, come up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. 
But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then she said to her, then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. So, big, big chunk of scripture, a lot of stuff going on. The context, um, Jesus had just, he was literally stepping off of a boat. He had been on the other side of the lake, and when he was on the other side of the lake, he had been teaching, and he had been performing miracles. He calmed, he, had, he, he exerted control over nature. He calmed a storm. He healed a man possessed by demons. And the crowds had started to get wind of it, and they heard, and they were expecting him, and they were excited to see him. And the, we're going to dive into this passage by looking at what I would call the different characters in this passage. And the first character that we're going to look at, ooh, sorry, I keep hitting that wrong button. We are all over the place. There we go. The first character that we're going to look at is the crowd. The crowd had been waiting. They were all hyped up. They were waiting for Jesus. They were waiting for Jesus to come heal people. They were waiting for Jesus to teach. They wanted to see Jesus do his thing. Each one of us has a crowd in our lives. There is a group of people who has the loudest voice, who exerts the most influence over us, who, for whatever reason, we attribute to them the ability to have the greatest impact on our life, either positive or negative. There's a crowd that influences us. If you're a student, that crowd is most likely your classmates, the people who you are around most of the time, all day, every day. They exert an influence on you. If you are a professional, if you're in the workplace, it's most likely your coworkers, or perhaps your customers, or even in some organizations you have a series of bosses who are the crowd that you have to please and keep happy. Um, there's lots of different things. If you, if you run a household, while they might be smaller in stature and in number, a one-year-old and a three-year-old can feel like a crowd and can be the loudest voices in your life and exert the most influence over you. Uh, there are some folks who have a difficult time um, connecting and operating in real life. So maybe the crowd for some of us is digital, right? Maybe your crowd is actually built by the algorithms that run social media. You watch three TikTok videos of somebody flipping cups, your crowd is gonna become cup flippers, right? The algorithm will feed you what it thinks you want to see, and that becomes the voice that influences you. Here's the thing about the crowd. 
The crowd does not care about you. The crowd is fickle. The crowd is demanding. The crowd is insatiable. They are never satisfied. And they are not for you. We watch Jesus. Jesus gets out of the boat and the crowd greets him. And they have all these expectations of him. But Jesus always had compassion on the crowd, but was never controlled by them. It's the first thing we can learn about Jesus and how he interacts in time. He was never controlled by the crowd. He did not let the crowd dictate what he did with his time, how he operated, and where, where he went. The, um, the next character in this passage is Jairus. And again, for context, Jairus was a synagogue leader. He was probably a person of wealth and of status. He might have had a little bit of an entourage with him, a couple of the attendants from the synagogue. He was probably important enough that as he came through a crowd, the crowd would have parted ways for him. And he came up to Jesus, and he wanted Jesus' attention. Just like each one of us has a crowd in our life, each one of us has the one in our life. There is somebody in our life who we have attributed enough significance to that they become louder than the crowd, that they will exert an influence over us like the crowd does. And so think about it from where you're at, your position of life, who that, who that might be. If you are on the younger side of things, if you're a student, young professional, maybe it's somebody you're crushing on, and you would do anything and everything to get that person's attention and be in a relationship with that person. For those of us who are starting into adulthood, maybe, maybe it's the idea of something, of someone, um, of like a mother or a father who was supposed to have treated you in a certain way who was supposed to have cared for you and loved you and failed to do that. And so everything that you think and say and do is kind of shaped by that relationship or the lack of that relationship. It controls your actions and your motivations and how you spend your, your time. Um, there, these one, the, the one, they have this ability... To, to grab a hold of us and to exert this power on us that would make us do things that we shouldn't do. But the laws of physics would suggest we don't have time to do. But we're driven by this one because it, this person stands out. Now, I'm not suggesting there are, there are, we have significant people in our lives and we are supposed to um, we're supposed to be for them. We're supposed to serve them, right? But Jesus was never consumed by the one. He always had compassion for the one, but he was never consumed by the one. Never caved to the crowd and was never consumed by the one. Never became so enmeshed with the one or the idea of the one that it controlled him or how he spent his time. The next character we meet in this passage is the woman with, um, with bleeding is how she is described. It said she suffered for 12 years. She had a medical condition which the doctors could not heal. 
and the nature of the medical condition was such that it kept her from community. There were ritual purity laws that existed back then that, that said that if you suffer from this kind of ailment, that you cannot be around people. So she was alone for 12 years. 12 years. Because Jesus did not cave to the crowd, because he was not consumed by the one, he had the time, he had the effort, he had the energy for this woman to notice this woman. This woman stopped in, stopped everything, the crowd, because she reached out for Jesus, for help from Jesus. And he had the time and the wherewithal and the energy to recognize what was going on. And not only, not only did Jesus heal her, but he gave her what she most needed. He called her daughter. Jesus doesn't call anybody else daughter in Scripture. This woman who had been without relationship for 12 years, Jesus bestows this term of endearment on her. The God of the universe calls her daughter. Right? When we're hurried, when we're stressed, when we're trying to get from one thing to the next, we don't have the wherewithal to like, oh man, this person could really use a word of encouragement. Right? Because Jesus was right where he, he was fully present where he was. He knew the crowd was pressing on him. He knew Jairus was, was getting anxious. But he still had the wherewithal to heal this woman. And then as he's still speaking, Scripture tells us, a representative from Jairus' house comes up and says, stop bothering the teacher. Jairus' daughter is dead. It's time to, time to move on. Jesus, don't, don't worry, not hurried, right? Not, not kicking it into high gear. It's like, just believe, and she will be well. And they move on, and they go to Jairus' house. Jesus does not operate in the same way that the world would operate. He does not travel at light speed, right? He will still find us if we're traveling at light speed, trying to do a thousand things, going a thousand miles an hour, but that's not the speed that he travels at. He doesn't cave to the crowd. He's not consumed by the one. He has the time and the energy to do the things that he needs to do. The, the crowd, all the crowd's expectations, they got to see Jesus do his thing. They got to experience him teach. They got to see him heal. They, everything that they expected of him, he fulfilled. Jairus' daughter was healed. The woman with bleeding was healed. And it was all done without hurry, without exhaustion, without being scattered. Right? We never... See, that's not true. There's one place in Scripture where we get the impression that Jesus was in a hurry, and that's on his way to the cross. Other than that, we don't ever read or hear about Jesus hurrying. How did he do that? <clears throat> you might say, well, he's God. 
That's how he did it. When he walked this earth, Jesus was 100% human. He was, had the same confines that you and I have in terms of how we have to interact with time. So my suggestion to you is this, is that Jesus' pace was subject to his mission. His mission was never subject to his pace. Jesus moved at the pace of his mission. Jesus' mission was to seek and to save the lost. Jesus' mission was to do the will of him who sent him. Jesus' mission was to liberate the captives, to bring sight to the blind, to restore the broken. That was the mission of Jesus, and his mission was what guided his pace. He knew what his mission was. If something came up that was in line with what God the Father sent him to do, he did it. And it didn't matter if it was an additional thing. It didn't matter if it was an interruption. He did it. If it, when his part, that leg of the mission was complete, he moved on. He was guided by his mission. The other thing that he was guided by was his identity was founded on his relationship with his heavenly father, with God. He knew who he was. Son of God, with whom God is well-pleased connected to his father. Jesus had a regular habit of of getting up early and going out to spend time with his father. Jesus had times of intense, crazy activity in ministry, and he did more than you or I could possibly imagine, but he did it from a place of rest and connection with his father. And whenever it was done, he would come back and he would rest more so he could go out and do more. Jesus knew what his mission was and he knew who he was. That's what allowed him to do the things he did. That's what allowed him to operate within the confines of time in a way that is so foreign to us. But that's the example that he set for us. That's how he wants us to operate within time. Knowing who we are and what we are called to do is the best filter for the things that we allow to occupy our time. Know what your mission is and know who you are. Right? What's our mission? Love God, love others. It's our mission as a church. It's our mission as individuals. We are to do everything that we can to organize our life in such a way that everything that we are involved in increases our ability to give and receive love from God, from others, to God, to others. That's our mission. That is the filter through which we should be looking at how we spend our time. We also have to know who we are, right? Just like Jesus knew who he was, we have to know the the rhythm that Jesus walked in, how he uniquely wired us to walk in that rhythm. And we follow his example. Jesus was able to do the things that he did because, as a human because of his connection with God the Father. Because he knew what his mission was, knew who he was. Right? We, our, are, we are deeply loved children of God. If you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are a son and daughter of the Most High God. 
You are a divine branch off of the vine. You are adopted into the family of God. You have an inheritance. You were thought about a long time before you were born. That's how much God loves you. That's who you are. You're here to love God and love others, and you're here as a child of God. Jesus knew those things because he was in rhythm with the Father. He spent time with the Father. As we engage in those same rhythms, we begin to become aware of our mission. It gets driven down inside of us, and we become the more familiar with who we are. And I'm going to suggest to you this, this rhythm, right? There should be a daily rhythm. There should be a weekly rhythm. And there should be, uh, you know, bigger chunks of time, like quarterly or, or yearly. You're, we've been given out this book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality Day by Day. And I've been hearing feedback just, it seems like, at least once a week from people who are interacting with this book and the difference it's making in their lives. Your daily rhythm this book outlines twice a day, you sit down and you spend time in silence, you read a piece of scripture, you read a thought from maybe one of the desert fathers or mothers, you read a thought from a current um, theological leader or pastor, and then there's a prayer and some more silence. If, if you don't know what it means, like if you're here and you're, oh, I don't know how to spend time with God, what is that all about? This, this is a great resource. It walks you through it and it suggests times a day when you can do it. This is a great way to start a daily rhythm if you don't yet have one. If you have a daily rhythm, pick this up and include it. There's some, we still have some left out at the, at the book table if you haven't gotten one yet. In your weekly rhythms, right? We were created to live in relationship with other people. And I want to encourage you, we're gonna get our, what we call our community groups started back up in March. And a community group is a group of people six, eight, ten people that get together, somebody's house, coffee shop, and there's a leader, and um, we walk through, could be a book of the Bible, it could be message follow-up, uh, it could be a book like we have out on the, on the table. We spend time connecting with each other, spend time connecting with God outside of Sunday morning. So you add that, you have that once a week opportunity to develop that rhythm that keeps us focused on giving and receiving love to God, giving and receiving love to each other. And those two kind of things, if you have a church background, those will probably feel pretty familiar to you. The next one might be a little bit of a new idea or, or a stretch even. And I, so on bigger chunks of time, once every three months, once a year, try to take an extended period of time and this took me like 30 seconds, and these are just things that I have done, right? So go to the rail trail in Trumbull Center and just go for a walk. Spend a couple hours in nature. Don't bring a book. Don't, don't bring just you and nature and God and just go for a hike, right? Long Beach in Stratford. If you're not a woodsy person, you're a beach person, go hang out at the beach. Listen to the waves, one of my favorite spots around here is the Cascades at Lake Mohegan, right off exit 44 off the Merritt Parkway. Beautiful little waterfalls hidden, trails you can walk through, nice big open lake. The God's grandeur, Scripture tells us that we can 
we can know who he is by looking around, by looking around us, by experiencing, by enjoying nature. Set aside some time to just spend an hour, two hours, three hours, just by yourself, you and God. The last two things up there are retreat centers. And if you, if you have the ability or if you're interested in this and you don't, you, you're not sure how to make it work, come, come see me. Um, there's a place in Madison, and I went to this place, St. Birgitta's in, in Darien. They both have websites. Just a little heads up, the St. Birgitta's website, after about six seconds, you hear the sisters start chanting. It scares me every time I go to the website, right? So just be prepared for that. Um, but they're, they're quiet locations. They can provide a room. If you want to do like an overnight, they will feed you. They're waterfront. They're just, they're places out of the ordinary so you can go and connect with God and just, and just be with him and just listen, right? So a different, a different idea, something that you might not have thought of before, something you might think is some kind of crazy luxury, but I would encourage you that it's absolutely necessary to our experiencing that rhythm of, that Jesus has so that we might know who we are and that we might know um, what our, our mission is. So what happens if we get out of sync with Jesus? What would happen up here if Patrick just like started playing his own rhythm different from the band? That would be hard to listen to, right? It's hard to live life when we're out of sync with the person who's leading us. When we, um, oh, sorry, Real quick, on the, um, the rhythms, right? The daily rhythms, the weekly rhythms, the bigger yearly. Be aware of your seasons of life and special circumstances. If you are a mom of young children, that's gonna look a lot different than it will for, for me. My, my boys are 18 and 21, right? My time constraints um, are different than, than that. Or if you're a retired person, your time constraints are different. Recognize your season of life. Don't beat yourself up over it and make it, make it work. Um, I asked Leanne if I could share this story. When, when Josie was in preschool, so this is seven, six, seven, eight years ago, um, Leanne and I were having a conversation about like, how, do, how, do, how does a young mom get time alone? And I was kind of asking her questions about her schedule and um, she had a pretty regular rhythm of picking Josie up from preschool. I'm like, okay, so can you get there 10 minutes early and wait in line in the queue to pick up Josie and just grab that 10 minutes and just be still in your car or listen to worship music or read scripture? You Don't beat yourself up over a season of life. Recognize your season of life and work in it. Work, allow Jesus to work through it. The other thing, special circumstances, right? Like if you have a special needs child, if you're caring for an aging parent, if you have a physical ailment or health issue, right? again, don't beat yourself up. Recognize it. Seek, talk to one of the elders. Talk to, to Kevin or Craig or Carrie. Talk to me. And we can, we can help like, find that rhythm within that season of life, within those special circumstances. If we don't, if we... If we get out of step with Jesus, then we fall subject to misplaced ambition and a search for approval in the wrong places. Right? Jesus didn't go to the crowds. Right? His ambition didn't leave him, lead him to please the crowds. 
And his search for approval didn't leave him to give in to that one consuming, oh, Jairus is an important guy. I should, I should help him out. And I'll find my approval in that if I help somebody. Our, our ambition and our approval can lead us to do things, right? That our, the time can get away from us. It can cause us, like I said earlier, to, to try to defy the laws of physics. We, we try to attempt to do these things that we have no business doing, that are not ours to do. Um, let me give you an example. So um, when I was 13, my folks split. And from 13 on, I didn't, I didn't see a whole lot of my father. And I didn't, real, I didn't have this realization until um, I was much older. But as I was growing... And as I was even a young man, married and having a young family, I would, I would take on projects that I didn't know how to do. I used to make Gail crazy. She's like, have you ever done that before? No. You know how to do it? No. We'll figure it out. But I would take them on thinking that at some point, my dad would see it. And he would comment on it. And he would say, oh, that's cool, I'm proud of you, or way to go, nice job. Right? And those weren't, again, you know, as I came to the realization and I was able to to stop doing that, right? Stop spending my time pursuing things that were not beneficial, that were not um, part of the mission. I was trying to meet needs that went long went by long ago. You're like, you, you're, Tom, you're just like making way too much of this. I want to, I'm just busy. I'm just a busy person. That's why I feel hurried. That's why I feel exhausted. I'm asking you to peel back a layer and ask yourself why you do the things you do. Are they in line with your mission? Are they growing out of who you are in Jesus? Or are they driven by a misplaced sense of ambition? Are they driven by this search for approval? That is, we, ha- we already have it in Jesus, but we're looking in other places. So a little thought exercise for you. I do X because... I think people will think I'm successful. I think people will need me. I think people will be proud of me. Fill in the blank. I do X because I want to get along with everybody. I don't want anybody to be upset with me. I want you to think about why it is you do the things you do. And those, that could be a hard thought exercise It could require confession. It could require letting go of of something or someone. It's going to require time. It will require a lot of time under the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is not harsh, right? The Holy Spirit is not going to grind you down. The Holy Spirit is going to direct you and guide you into all truth and to freedom from that stuff that would occupy even our schedules. 
and it, it, could, it could stir up some stuff and it could be hard, but it will bring you peace and it will bring you freedom and it will be worth it. Jesus created time and he exists outside of it. He showed us when he walked this earth as a person how to not be held a captive to time. He knew who he was. He knew what his mission was. If we take the time to get in step with him, to figure out that rhythm of life that he, he designed us to live in, then we can be free from the noise and the distractions and the misplaced sense of ambition and, and seeking approval in the wrong place. We can be free from that stuff and we can concentrate on what we were created to do. We can concentrate on loving God and loving others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, thank you for your example. We thank you that you walked this earth as a man with the limitations that each and every one of us has. Lord, we thank you that you always had compassion on the crowd. You always had compassion on the one. But you were so aware of what you were called to do and so aware of who you are that you moved with purpose and intention and you met people where they were and you freed them and you spoke words of truth into their life. Lord Jesus, we want to be that kind of people. We want to do those things. Speak to each one of us this morning, Lord, that we might, um, that we might grow in our knowledge of, of who we are. We might grow in our knowledge of our mission. We thank you for the, the gentle guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit, and we look forward to the things that you're going to do in and through us. In your name we pray, amen.